she had uh, gotten up early and uh, come to church early, and I was looking for the second coming of Christ, because <laughs> I was like, what is, what has gotten into her? I thought for sure it was a sign of the apocalypse, but now I understand. Thanks. And by the way, I'm not 50 yet. 49. So, uh, we've been uh, walking through the book of Nehemiah. Yeah. I wanted to start with a story. Um, It's actually from a church that I grew up in, uh, in the south suburbs of Chicago, And uh, we had left the church uh, after I was young in grade school, and I found out about a controversy within the church when I was in high school, and I wasn't really walking with the Lord. But apparently the story goes, I I don't know all the details of it, but there was one family, and it was just a small little church in the suburbs, one family, and the, uh, the father was a chemist, And he had some chemicals that he stored at home. Um, And he had a daughter. And there was another family in this small church. They had a son about the same age, and they were good friends. And one day, they were over at the chemist's house, and the son, he was middle school or uh, just beginning high school, and he found the dangerous chemicals. They were in these, like, plastic uh, uh, bags. And he took one, and he put it in his pocket. And uh, he was riding home on his bicycle, and apparently it burst, and the chemicals ran down his leg and caused severe injury. He had to be in the hospital. They had uh, uh, skin grafts, all this kind of thing. And uh, the, the family that was in the church with the son who took the chemicals, they sued uh, the chemist for having those dangerous uh, chemicals um, because there was a, a lot of medical expenses, went back and forth. As you can imagine, what happened is the within the church, families took sides. They were arguing back and forth. People left the church. It, it was uh, devastating. Uh, my my parents were close to uh, one of the families that was there. And I was only in high school when they, they told me the story. I was too young to know what was going on at the time. And even though I wasn't really walking with the Lord, um, my first thought was, Mom and Dad, shouldn't like Jesus people treat those situations different? Isn't that like bad? Not, not just for, for this individual church, but isn't it just like bad for Christians in general? And, you know, I was, I was a teenager and I was wrestling with the Christian faith and wrestling with the church and all of that. And I have to say that didn't help me in my affection for the church. In fact, it, it, it pushed me away from the church. And I said... If that's what it's about, if that's, if that's the, the testimony of the church, then I'm not really sure that that's something that I want to hitch my name to, and be associated with, and be a part of. Last week in Nehemiah 4, 
we were looking at how Nehemiah had, had, had come to Jerusalem. Uh, most of you know the story by now, but if you're, you're new, it's a story. It's an ancient story that the, uh, the city of Jerusalem was still burned down. They were still, they had, uh, the exiles had come back. They had rebuilt the temple, but the walls were down. They, experienced, they were experiencing disgrace. Nehemiah is 800 miles away in Susa, but feels this prophetic call and vision from the Lord that he would be the leader that would draw the exiles and rebuild the wall and establish the, the testimony and the glory of God. So Nehemiah goes there and we've been paying attention to these really uh, beautiful and brilliant leadership principles in Nehemiah's life and how he's leading that way. Last week we saw that there's a number of uh, political leaders that were not happy that Nehemiah had returned to, to Jerusalem and was promoting the good of the city. It challenged their power and their authority and so they started to ridicule. They started to make threats. They, they started to do all these things that they were going to attack. They created this this fear and this uncertainty in the people that were trying to build the wall uh, of, that was surrounding Jerusalem. And, and it was, we saw how brilliant it was that Nehemiah dealt with this outside threat. Not just the outside threat, but also the dissonance within the people that the outside threats caused. Nehemiah chapter 5 has a different challenge. And that challenge, yes, if, it, if you'd turn with me to Nehemiah 5, that would be great. Um, there are some Bibles located in, in the seats in front of you. But Nehemiah 5 is a different challenge. He's not dealing with an outside threat. He's dealing with an inside threat. That there are some unhealthy things that are going on within the community of Christ, within the people of God. And they were threatening um, the, the work, but also really the testimony of God's people to the rest of the world. Sometimes the threats that happen within a community or within a family or within a company, those are the harder ones. Would you agree? Those, because oftentimes when the, the threat is from the outside, then, then a family can rally around and really meet and be unified and meet that threat. But when the threat or the dissonance is from within, that creates disunity. That, that creates argument and disagreement and struggle and pain. And oftentimes it's the threat within that doesn't unify, but really separates and compromises what God is doing in a family or a company or a church, a community of faith. So Nehemiah 5, I think, has some profound lessons about how we can handle those threats from within, how we handle some of those difficult things. So I'm going to read uh, most of Nehemiah 5, but let's, get, let's paint the picture a little bit. So again, Nehemiah 4 was the outside threat. They've unified. They're posting a guard. They're doing all sorts of good things. 
But then Nehemiah 5.1 begins with this. Now the men and their wives, these are the Jewish men and the Jewish wives, the people in Jerusalem doing the work on the wall. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Let's just take a moment to unpack what's happening, what's going on, what's the, the dissonance from within. First, there is a shortage of food. Many of the Jewish exiles had returned and previously, the, the city was devastated. And probably Jerusalem did not have enough of the agricultural supply to, pay, uh, to provide food for all the exiles that continued to return. And so then, Nehemiah is asking many people, especially from large families, that, that to work on the wall. And what they're saying, what we really need to do is work our fields. Because we don't have food we're, we're hungry. And then you throw in King Artaxerxes' tax, which they had to pay. And if they're not creating any food and it's agricultural-based, they're not making any money. So, so this was not sustainable. They were hungry and, and they were wrestling through this. And to add all of that to the difficulty, not only were they hungry, not only were they out of money, but then you had um, the, the wealthy, the, the nobles and officials who had land, who had wealth. They were saying, well, okay, with the land that you have, that you've received, you can mortgage that. But they were charging interest. And that interest was becoming overwhelming. And then once they... Char were charging interest if the people still couldn't swing it with food and tax and all of those things, then the practices of the day is that if you had kids, that you would give them over to the nobles and the officials and they would work as slaves. And if it wasn't enough for the kids, then you actually uh, practice the day. The person, you would enter into slavery. And this dynamic was happening within the Jewish culture. They weren't being enslaved to outside nations as they were in the exile, but to the Jewish wealthy. And they're going, this is not right. All right? Practices of the day. Money has been a little bit tight for us lately. So I was thinking about taking Luke and Cambria and, and giving them over to... All right, so, so you get the sense of what's going on here? And we're going to see um, how, 
how Nehemiah handles the situation. But before we do, I, I want to encourage you with something that I, I think that the, the nobles and the officials, they were missing something that even though this is an ancient story many years ago, thousands of years ago, I think you and I can easily miss this as well. All right? So the nobles and the officials, they could have argued, hey, we're simply doing the practices of the day. This is normal. This is, you go to any other nation in the world and, and, and we're doing what they do. This is how the world works. But, but here's what they were missing. That God, from the very beginning, has called his children to not only live lives in a, in a radically different way than the rest of the world, but he calls us to live in community, to live in fellowship, to live in love of one another in a radically, categorically different way than the world does. That, think about this for a moment. He's saying that my grace, my mercy, my love, my con kindness is meant to transform you in every area of your life. But it, you'll miss it if you don't see that God's grace and mercy and love is meant to transform your relationships and your community. How you speak to one another. How you relate to one another. How you care for one another. My love and grace and mercy should change your and transform your relationships and your community. So it becomes a testimony to the world. You're not supposed to say, well, that's how everybody does it. You're not supposed to say, well, yeah, maybe that wasn't the best, but that's how I was raised. That, that's how our, our family did forgiveness. That, that's how, uh, that's just who I am. Have you ever said that? That's just who I am. That's why I, I related to my sister in that way. That's why I said those hurtful things to my, to my parents. Well, they said those things back to me, right? So I'm just, I'm just this is the, why I made the decisions about my kids because that's how my parents did it and it worked good enough for me. You see, I, I think friends, in the church, just like they did back then, we miss God's profound call. His call isn't just to a different kind of life, but his call is to a radical new community. And if we miss that, we miss a huge aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know, from the very beginning, God was a speaking specifically to what was happening in Nehemiah's time. In the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, which they would have had available to them, listen to what God said. He knew these circumstances would happen. He knew what was going on. This is in Deuteronomy 23, 19. Well before Nehemiah, he said this, do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. 
You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. You see, God was saying, my blessing is directly connected to how you treat others. He said that from the very beginning. Look at Leviticus in terms of enslavement. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, God already knew that this was going to happen. Do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers and temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Now that year of Jubilee was when all debt was canceled, right? All of that. You, you see, from the very beginning, he was calling us to what you could call a sacred community, sacred friendships, sacred relationships. Not just our individual relationship with God, but he was saying, he was calling us that our, our, our love for one another, all these, there's in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, there's all these one another's. He said, because you're the community of Christ, you're supposed to bear one another's burdens. You're supposed to forgive one another, unlike the world. You're supposed to be patient with one another. In other words, he's saying, you're supposed to speak and walk with and journey with one another in a way that reflects me, not the world around you. I want to suggest, friends, that this is one of the primary failures of the church today. Is the community that the church lives in. We're missing it again and again and again. Zechariah 7, 9. This is what the Lord Almighty said, and minister true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Think of Jesus' words in the New Testament. He was saying, by the way, This is how you should be known. A new command I give you. Now it's an old command in one sense that God has been saying this from the beginning. But it's a new command in another sense that when Christ came, he didn't just call sinners to repentance and to live a different life. He came to create a community of the gospel. And he says, in this new community, Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Would you think about some things? I'm just going to say some things that I think look very, very similar in the church and outside of the church. Gossip and backbiting. 
I see a lot of similarities within the church and outside of the church. Jealousy and anger. Forgiveness and compassion. Truth-telling and commitment. Am I being too straight up with you? Do you see it? You see it? God is calling his church to live in relationship with one another in a radically different way that it would bubble over in such a degree that people would go not, oh my gosh, that was an awesome sermon. We're going to that church. Or the music is my favorite there. But that they would go, oh my gosh, that community loves one another. They have, they have patience with one. Forget, they don't quit on each other. When it got hard and difficult and painful, they were there. They were fighting for the love of God in their community. I want to be a part of that. How powerful that would be if our relationships looked more like how God loved us rather than the world. Now, we're going to get to Nehemiah and how he takes this difficult, challenging circumstance and leads through it. But before we do that, I just wanted to say a few words related to our seven-year vision. I'm just trying to give snippets of our seven-year vision because I think this relates. I would say I've been waiting and just the Lord's timing has been good Um, I wish he would have given me these three things like a year ago, but we trust in God's timing that there's three values that, that are deep in my heart that I want when, when anyone talks about our seven year vision of Springs Community Church, I want you to be able to say these three values. All right. There's, there's a, a lot of, um, We've talked a lot about vehicles and the how. We've talked about the resources of God, fivefold and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, all those things. But these values, I would say, are, are the core values of what God is wanting to do in our community of faith. And I say, first, one value is this, that I do believe that he's calling us to go from superficial discipleship to in-depth spiritual formation. That there is going to be, friends, I have a holy discontent with the lack of personal transformation. And, and for the next seven years, we're going to press, be pressing into spiritual formation that looks different. Secondly, We're going to go from anemic evangelism, which I think is another characteristic of much of the church. There's some churches that are doing it well, but some are not. And we want to go from anemic evangelism to thoughtful and empowered witness. And then the third one, and the reason why I'm introducing it now is because I I think it directly relates to Nehemiah 5, 
is we want to go from shallow relationships, relationships that look very much like the world's relationships, to sacred community, to sacred friendship, to sacred relationships. And over the next couple of months and years, I'm going to invite you to those three values. What's, what's the seven-year I still don't get what are, what's the reason. What, let, let's talk about that. It's about an in-depth spiritual formation. It's about a thoughtful and empowered evangelism or witness. And it's about sacred community, sacred friendship. Those three things we're going to press in. Can you imagine, friends, if over the next seven years, we grew as a community of faith exponentially in those three ways? Sign me up for that church. I want to be there. That's what I want to press into and live. I I believe that God is doing something unique. He's been preparing us for, for something unique and special. And I think personally we can engage with all three of those things. And then corporately, we're going to say, what does it mean to grow in those three ways? Amen? So what's the seven-year vision about? What's at its core? In-depth spiritual formation. Thank you, son. Thoughtful and empowered witness and sacred community. Is it fair to say that Nehemiah, that time in this moment, they were not experiencing sacred community? It was broken. So what's Nehemiah do he says you know what all right this is too hard let's give up (laughs) all right well thank you for coming (laughs) no there is a rest of the chapter look at verse six Nehemiah, who's writing the story says this when I heard their outcry and their charges I was very angry I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. That was what essentially to be exiled was. They were, they were sold off into slavery. Now they were being released and they were being brought back to Jerusalem, but now they're experiencing enslavement by their own people. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They were working directly against what God was doing in their midst. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. I love that verse. There was a holy hush at this large meeting. Nehemiah was speaking prophetically. He was speaking truthfully. He was speaking lovingly. And everybody could hear the voice of God. 
So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? You see, even in that moment, even before Jesus said a new command I have for you, Nehemiah knew that how we love one another, it can either be, we can, a horrible testimony to the surrounding world or a beautiful testimony to the surrounding world. Verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields and vineyards and olive groves and houses and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Listen to the response of the nobles, the officials, the wealthy. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, my God, shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Boy, I, I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of that prayer, right? That he's saying, if they don't change their way, if they don't live differently, would you empty their lives? All right, a couple of leadership principles from how Nehemiah handles this. Look at verse six and seven again with me. This is a leadership principle. Would you ponder before action, would you ponder your anger and all other emotions? I love six and seven are right next to each other, right? You're, you're, you think that he's gonna like accuse the officials and the nobles. He said, when I heard the outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And so I pondered. Isn't that cool? That, that, that right next to each other, you had the dynamic. The King James Version translation, he says, I was very angry and I consulted with myself. <laughs> Boy, I think that's a great leadership principle, right? That, that we, we feel the emotion, we're, we're wrestling in that. And, and yet... There's an aspect where he does a gut check, a heart check, where he consults his own heart and mind. Yes, in this moment, there was a, a righteous anger that was stirring within uh, Nehemiah. It, very similar to the, the principle of holy discontent that we talked about a number of week, weeks ago. Uh, did you know that we can be filled with this, this righteous anger and God is stirring for us to do something, say something, challenge something? Do you also know we can be filled with an unrighteous anger? Yes? To be honest with you, I think I'm filled with an unrighteous anger far more than I'm filled with a righteous anger. Can I get an amen? amen. Not about me, but for you. <laughs> right? 
Well, yeah, thank you. Right, that, that we get this anger in us. And, and, and I think, so, and so often we can respond and react and, and yet we fail to say, hey, is this anger from you? Oftentimes, friends, when I'm filled with an anger, anger and if I am able to live this principle enough and do a heart check, oftentimes I realize that my anger is far more about me than it is about the circumstance or the person. And God isn't calling me to that prophetic word and that challenge. He's calling me to repent. And there's a, a righteousness that I think is about you. And it's actually about me. I love Nehemiah as, as a leader he says, I, I, conf- I consulted with myself. Ephesians 4 says this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are members of one body. He, he's weighing in. I'm calling you to different relationships, sacred relationships. And then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold, friends. Anger, whether righteous anger or unrighteous anger, can lead to a foothold in your life. Do you know that? I was reading an article about Beth Moore. Uh, many of you know Beth Moore. She's an exceptional uh, biblical teacher. And she was uh, telling the story of, she said, uh, after a social media uh, break, um, she returned to Twitter. And she, then she shared some of her reflections of taking a break, hiatus, and returning to social media. It wasn't like a huge time. It was, I, I think it was like a couple of days or a week or something, but she returned and she wrote about the toxicity of social media and our social media culture and the necessity for Christian civility. She wrote, about, uh, she wrote some short threads about humility and self-control. She qu- quoted James 3, we're just, and then she said this, we're just not better than anyone else. You know who she was speaking to? She was speaking to Christians. She's saying, when it comes the, to the toxicity level of social media, we're just not better than anyone else. She goes on to say, that's the long and short of it. It is a, a she says, Twitter is like a laboratory of Victor Frankenstein's social experiment. It produces freaks. Worse yet, the worst of them claim to be Christians. Time for actual Jesus followers, and then she puts, don't buy that nonstop verbally abuse are Christians. 
She says it's time for actual Jesus followers to revolt with a clear demarcation of civility on social media. I thought, wow, this, yeah, how much of what we say, not just to one another, but now in this new context online, is filled with anger, righteous anger, and unrighteous anger. I never preach with my cell phone, but I, I brought up my cell phone uh, this morning. Do you all have your cell phone on you? Yes, this is a, the best case ever. It's got Boba Fett and the Millennium Falcon on it. But anyways, that's beside the point. Would you pull out your cell phone? Oh, we're getting practical here. Isn't this Nehemiah a thousand years ago? Now, I know some of you have the Bible app, so I don't look with condemnation as you're looking at your phone during my sermon. All right? So I've accepted that, all right? But what would it look like if we consecrated to the Lord all of our words, all of our comments on Twitter and Facebook and all the other stuff I can't keep up with, right? If we said, God, I, I, I'm going to give this to you and ask that you would consecrate my, my thoughts and my words. And, and when I read something or, or watch something or, or listen to the news or open the newspaper or watch, whatever that is, and when I am about to type in my righteous anger... I'm going to consult with myself. Amen. And I'm going to say, God, is that from you? Are you calling me to say something? Friends, he's calling us to an uncommon civility. He's calling us to an uncommon kindness, an uncommon thoughtfulness within the community of faith and outside of the community of faith. And I want to say Christians left and right are failing. We're failing. We're reflecting the world, sometimes worse than the world, right? Beth Moore, it's the Christians that are the worst of them. Have you ever heard the phrase, the Christians like to shoot their wounded? We do it all the time. We criticize other churches, other leaders, and we know this much about the circumstance. We, we criticize political leaders that are of a different party and we know this much we're missing the nuance of it and the testimony of our words to one another and outside is hurting not helping the cause of Christ and his church now there's a second leadership principle that's here that Nehemiah he consults himself and he does speak the truth he does speak the truth, but he speaks the truth not for condemnation, but for restoration. 
Look at your neighbor. Say, not condemnation. Not condemnation. But for what? Restoration. There is an axiom in social justice circles, which I agree with, I value, and I believe in, that sometimes the prophetic voice within our church and outside of our church needs to speak the truth to power. Speak truth to power. We see Nehemiah doing that right here. Who were the powerful in his day and age? It was the wealthy. It was the nobles, right? It, it was the officials. And so he speaks truth in power. He names it. He names it. And yet not for the purpose of condemnation, but for the purpose of righting the wrong. For calling out, in other words, you can say it like this, Nehemiah was loving well the nobles and officials. He was loving well the wealthy and those in power. He was loving well by speaking the truth in love. To right the situation, not for condemnation. Who knows this? That you can be filled with a righteous anger and at the same time you can sin in your righteous anger you see the difference there you can sin it's very easy to sin in an unrighteous anger right yeah some of you do it all the time (laughs) but you can also sin in a righteous anger how do we do that one way is not only how we say something how we speak truth to power. But we can also speak truth to power in such a way that brings condemnation and judgment within the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ. Do you understand? That's crucial. That's huge. We can do that. We can sin in our righteous anger to our spouses. We can sin in our righteous anger to our children. We can sin in our righteous anger in social media, in politics, all of those ways. What we see in Nehemiah is this beautiful example of calling out sin. Look at these two passages. One is Galatians 6 from Paul. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Yes? Hmm. That's interesting. When you speak truth to power, is it about restoration? You're doing it in gentleness. Are you loving either that person within the community of faith or that enemy? Outside. Listen to what, uh, when the famous passage of Matthew 18, I don't know if we have that on the PowerPoints. Yes, we do. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. What's the intent? What's the motive of Matthew 18? Judgment and condemnation and get everybody to see how wrong your brother is. That's not the intent. 
That's not the intent. Do you you see both of those? Think about that. Galatians 6 and Matthew 18. Restore gently love. Win over your brother or your sister. Friends, as a nation, if I can speak outside of the community of faith for a moment, if you look at the politicalizing of our nation, there is one thing that happens in almost every news station that I watch. It is the demonization of the opponent. It works both ways. It's hard to watch a a news channel without seeing that dynamic, right? Now, we get to choose which channel we want, who we want to hear demonized. Boy, I think that's unhealthy. That's not good. But friends, we do that within the church as well, don't we? If we're criticizing a brother or sister, are we extending grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration to one another? There's a national case of a a pastor who I've learned so much from and I'm so sad that there were accusations that came out against him. And one of the the sad parts is the, the women who came out with accusations, they were demonized almost right away. Thankfully, the leaders of the church uttered an apology that they were part of the demonization of the accusations by the women. To a lesser degree, by the larger church, the leader was demonized right away with knowing this much about the situation. So it was working both ways. But but really the sadness is there was a, a lack of really loving and listening to and walking through those accusations in a way that honors God. Now, there's one more principle I want to talk with you about, and we'll go real quick. It's just a relational principle. It's not as much a, a, as a leadership principle, but it's a relational principle. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, he says this, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? You know that... Um, that little uh, Hebrew word for fear is yirah. You know that, that word that's translated fear, do you know what that means? It means fear. Now you can soften it, which is fine. It also means reverence, yes, yeah. But, but it's pointing us in a direction that we will give an account of how we treat one another. That God cares. He's told us that he cares about how we treat one another. And he wants us, see, what what the world teaches us to do is we treat others based on how we think they deserve to be treated. That's the culture, right? 
Yeah, Dave and Edna, they're bums. They deserve to be treated that way. You know, I love them, they're dear folks, right? But see, I've just decided how they deserve, by their life, how they deserve to be treated by me. And God says, where'd you learn that? That, That's not what I've called you ever. I've called you to treat one another as I have treated you. Yes, but they're bums and they're sinners. Oh, shoot. You see, we're mindful, we're reverent of his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his patience, his kindness, and that should flow. And we don't go, well, I think that's how they deserve. No. How God has treated us. We're going to give an account for every word the Lord says. All right, verse 19. I'm going to do the rest of the chapter next week, but I just want to, I love how the whole chapter ends. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Boy, Nehemiah is doing his best, isn't he? There's a brilliance there. There's a beauty there. And he knows that his life is before the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. So Lord, I am so thankful that you do not confront us with condemnation. But whenever you confront us, Lord, you're inviting us to experience your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace. Lord, forgive us when we have not treated others as you have treated us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't condemn us. We declare the promise that in Jesus Christ, therefore, there is no condemnation. But it's about forgiveness and healing and restoration. Lord, as we come to the table, we give to you our words, our thoughts, our actions, whether on the cell phone, whether online, whether in person, whether behind closed doors when that person is not there. We give you all of those. Lord, would you redeem us? Would you make us holy? Would you teach us to be your sons and daughters and how to relate to one another in such a way that is this incredible, beautiful testimony to the world? Teach us how to love our enemies that are outside the camp, Lord. I'd like to invite the elders 
forward and do communion in the way of intinction. That means that at the appropriate time, you come forward and we have a station for each section. If you could leave your section to your right, you take the little piece of bread or cracker and you dip it and you take it right there at the table. And then you return to your section to your left. It was the night in which Jesus was betrayed that there was this this sense of delight, even in the, the midst of betrayal, that this action, this sacrament would be a central part of the community of he was establishing the community of Christ, that that forgiveness and redemption and restoration would reflect all the relationships of his followers, of his disciples from that moment on until he returns again. He took the bread, he blessed it, gave thanks and he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me and in a similar way after dinner he took the cup and he said a new covenant relationship We often talk about the new covenant of relationship between us and God. But in that new covenant includes our relationship with one another. The way we live in relation to one another. And he was saying a new covenant, a new community, new relationships I invite you to. Do this in remembrance of me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, all is ready. Would you come?